Welcome to the History of North America. I'm Mark Vinette. It is impossible to properly understand the exploration and colonization of North America without having some understanding of Roman history. Before resuming the fascinating saga of New France, let's reach back in history to a pivotal epoch that directly fertilized the roots of the French-European nation. North American institutions, architecture, infrastructure, city planning, art, music, literature, history, culture, manners, customs, traditions, political organizations, laws, and language owe a great deal to the Roman Empire. The conquest of Gaul brought Roman occupation and influence to a land later to become France, one of North America's major European founding nations. Join me as we continue a fun precursor to the French exploration and colonization of North America. Gaul Conquered by Julius Caesar Historians, ancient and modern, have attributed to the Roman Senate, from the time of the establishment of the Roman province in Gaul, a long premeditated design of conquering Gaul altogether. Others have said that when Julius Caesar, in the year 58 BC, got himself appointed proconsul in Gaul, his single aim was to form for himself there an army devoted to his person, of which he might avail himself to satisfy his ambition and make himself master of Rome. We should not be too ready to believe in these far-reaching and precise plans, conceived and settled so long beforehand, whether by a senate or a single man. When Caesar procured for himself the government for five years of the Gauls, the fact was that, not desiring to be a sanguinary dictator or a gala chieftain, he went and sought abroad, for his own glory and fortune's sake, in a war of general Roman interest, the means and chances of success which were not furnished to him in Rome itself by the dogged and monotonous struggle of the factions. Gaul remained seriously disturbed and threatened. At the northeast, some bands of other Teutons, who had begun to be called Germans, men of war, had passed over the left bank of the Rhine, and were settling or wandering there without definite purpose. In eastern and central Gaul, the two great Gallic confederations were disputing the preponderance and making war upon one another, seeking the aid, respectively, of the Romans and of the Germans. At the foot of the Alps, the little nation, having fallen a prey to civil dissension, had given up its independence to Rome. Even in southern and western Gaul, the populations of Aquitania were rising, vexing the Roman province, and rendering necessary, on both sides of the Pyrenees, the intervention of Roman legions. Everywhere, floods of barbaric populations were pressing upon Gaul, were carrying disquietude even where they had not themselves yet penetrated, and causing presentiments of a general commotion. Caesar had all the gifts, all the means of success and empire that can be possessed by man. He was great in politics and in war. As active and full of resource amidst the intrigues of the forum, as amidst the combinations and surprises of the battlefield, equally able to please and to terrify. He had a double pride, which gave him double confidence in himself, the pride of a great noble and the pride of a great man. He was fond of saying, My Aunt Julia is maternally the daughter of kings. Paternally, she is descended from the immortal gods. My family unites to the sacred character of kings, who are the most powerful amongst men, the awful majesty of the gods, who have even kings in their keeping. Thus, by birth as well as nature, Caesar felt called to dominion, and at the same time he was perfectly aware of the decadence of the Roman patriciate, 
and of the necessity for being popular in order to become master. With this double instinct he undertook the conquest of the Gauls as the surest means of achieving conquest at Rome, but owing either to his own vices or to the difficulties of the situation, he displayed in his conduct and his work in Gaul so much violence and oppression, so much iniquity and cruel indifference, that, even at that time, in the midst of Roman harshness, pagan corruption, and Gallic or German barbarism, so great an infliction of moral and material harm could not but be followed by a formidable reaction. Where there are strength and ability, the want of foresight, the fears, the weaknesses, the dissensions of men, whether individuals or peoples, may be for long calculated upon, but it may be carried too far. After six years struggling, Caesar was victor. He had passed through and subjected them all, either by his own strong arm or thanks to their rivalries. In the year 52 BC, he was suddenly informed in Italy, whither he had gone on his Roman business, that most of the Gallic nations, united under a chieftain hitherto unknown, were rising with one common impulse, and recommencing war. The same perils, and the same reverses, the same sufferings, and the same resentments, had stirred up amongst the Gauls, without distinction of race and name, a sentiment to which they had hitherto been almost strangers, the sentiment of Gallic nationality, and the passion for independence, not local any longer, but national. This sentiment was first manifested among the populace and under obscure chieftains, Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-218-6010. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-218-6010. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-218-6010. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. A band of peasants rushed upon the town of Genabum, roused the inhabitants, and massacred the Italian traders and a Roman knight, whom Caesar had commissioned to buy corn there. In less than twenty-four hours the signal of insurrection against Rome was borne across the country, amongst whom conspiracy had long ago been waiting and paving the way for insurrection. Amongst them lived a young Gaul, whose real name has remained unknown, and whom history has called Vercingetorix, that is, chief over a hundred heads, chief in general. He came of an ancient and powerful family of Avernians, and his father had been put to death in his own city for attempting to make himself king. Caesar knew him, and had taken some pains to attach him to himself. It does not appear that the Avernian aristocrat had absolutely declined the overtures, but when the hope of national independence was aroused, Vercingetorix was his representative and chief. He descended with his followers from the mountain, and seized Gergovia, the capital of his nation. Thence his messengers spread over the center, northwest and west of Gaul. The greater part of the peoples and cities of those regions pronounced from the first moment for insurrection. The same sentiment was working amongst others, more compromised with Rome, who waited only for a breath of success to break out. Vercingetorix was immediately invested with the chief command, 
and he made use of it with all the passion engendered by patriotism and the possession of power. He regulated the movement, demanded hostages, fixed the contingents of troops, imposed taxes, inflicted summary punishment on the traitors, the dastards, and the indifferent, and subjected those who turned a deaf ear to the appeal of their common country to the same pains and the same mutilations that Caesar inflicted on those who obstinately resisted the Roman yoke. At the news of this great movement, Caesar immediately left Italy and returned to Gaul. He had one quality, rare even amongst the greatest men. He remained cool amidst the very hottest alarms. Necessity never hurried him into precipitation and he prepared for the struggle as if he were always sure of arriving on the spot in time to sustain it. He was always quick, but never hasty, and his activity and patience were equally admirable and efficacious. Starting from Italy, he passed two months in traversing within Gaul the Roman province and its neighborhood, in visiting the points threatened by the insurrection, and the openings by which he might get at, in assembling his troops, in confirming his wavering allies and it was not before the early part of March that he moved with his whole army to the very center of revolt, and started thence to push on the war with vigor. In less than three months he spread devastation throughout the insurgent country. He had attacked and taken its principal cities, delivering up everywhere country and city, lands and inhabitants, to the rage of the Roman soldiery, maddened at having again to conquer enemies so often conquered. To strike a decisive blow, he penetrated at last to the heart of the country of the Alvanians and laid siege to their capital and the birthplace of Vercingetorix. The firmness and the ability of the Gallic chieftain was not inferior to such a struggle. He understood from the outset that he could not cope in the open field with Caesar and the Roman legions. He therefore exerted himself in getting together a body of cavalry, numerous enough to harass the Romans during their movements to attack their scattered detachments, and bear his orders swiftly to all quarters, and to keep up the excitement against the different peoples with some hope of success. His plan of campaign, his repeated instructions, his passionate entreaties to the Confederates, were to avoid any action, to anticipate by their own ravages those of the Romans, to destroy everywhere, at the approach of the enemy, stores, springs, bridges, trees, and habitations, he wanted Caesar to find in his front nothing but ruins and clouds of warriors relentless in pursuing him without getting within reach. Frequently he succeeded in obtaining from the people these painful sacrifices in the interest of the common safety, as when the inhabitants of the district of Borgia burned in one day twenty of their towns or villages. Vercingetorix abjured them to burn their capital, but they refused, and the capture of their capital, though gallantly defended, justified the urgency of Vercingetorix, seeing that it was an important success for Caesar and a serious blow for the Gauls. Out of 40,000 combatants within the walls, it is said, scarcely 800 escaped the slaughter and succeeded in joining Vercingetorix, who had hovered continually in the neighborhood without being able to offer the besieged any effectual assistance. Nor was it only against the Romans that he had to struggle. He had to fight amongst his own people, against rivalry, mistrust, impatience, and discouragement. He was accused of desiring, beyond everything, the mastery. He was even suspected of keeping up with the aim of assuring his own future, secret relations with Caesar. He was called upon to attack the enemy in front, and so bring the war to a decisive issue. It was all very fine to be summoned by the popular voice to accomplish a great and arduous work, but you cannot be, with impunity, the most far-sighted, the most able, and the most in danger, because the most devoted. Vercingetorix was bearing the burden of his superiority and influence, 
until he should suffer the penalty and pay with his life for his patriotism and his glory. He was approaching the happiest moment of his enterprise and his destiny. In spite of reverses, in spite of Caesar's presence and activity, the insurrection was gaining ground and strength. Check out the YouTube version of this episode, which has accompanying images. I'm Mark Vinette, and I hope you're enjoying the ride. The Historical Jesus Podcast is the sweeping saga of the life and times of Galilean Jesus of Nazareth, as well as the faith, religion, and church founded to honor and disseminate his acts and teachings. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this fascinating journey through time, exploring the many great works of Christian theology, literature, architecture, music, and art inspired by the words and deeds of Jesus Christ.